to them. The difference is not the word nor the God from whom it is being proclaimed. The difference is the people that are receiving it. The condition of their hearts. The thoughts of their minds and the quality of their character. And so, the Lord intends to run them through his sieve. In verse 9, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. He says, I will take them and I will put them into myself. I will shake them like one shakes with a sieve and no pebble will fall to the earth. It will either stay in the sieve or it will go through the sieve. But the reality is, is when God shakes those who do not want to be shaken, there is no third option. It's the way of righteousness and grace, or it is the way of wickedness and destruction. There's no way to slip away. Not only is there no third option, but the primacy of the option that is going to occur isn't looking so good. He continues in verse 10 and says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Last week we considered that while the concept of God separating his people and separating his the, the sinners amongst his people away from, from the holy amongst his people of separating the wheats and the tares, the goat and the sheep of his people out from among the nations. Well, that concept of separation is, is abundant throughout Scripture. This very particular view of the sieve only exists in two places, one in the Old Testament, and that is here, and one in the New Testament concerning Peter. Peter knew what it was like to be sifted. As a matter of fact, I think that it's fair to say that his personal sifting is testimonial to the sifting of national Israel. You guys remember Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 32, where immediately after the Lord's Supper and before going to the cross, like at one of the most kind of intense times for Peter, Peter gets one of the heaviest things that's ever been said to him laid on him. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demand to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's such a loaded statement. Right there at this critical moment. Right before Jesus is going to make sure he's got a sword with him. He says, Simon, Satan's asked for you, buddy. I'm not going to tell him no. But I will pray for you. And you're not going to have good success because... Good success is coming, but you're not going to have it right now because what you're going to end up having to do is turn again. And when you do, I've got something for you. And of course, you know what Peter says. Peter says, heaven be, far be it from me, Lord. I'm willing to go and die for you. 
And yet we know after the events of the garden unfold in Matthew chapter 26, while the trial of Jesus is going on, it says, After a little while the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It literally means in the, in the Greek he went out and wretched. But when Christ prays for you, his prayer is effectual. You see, Peter was trying to do something. Peter was an unsaved man trying to be a saved man. And God, let me tell you, if that's you, and if it's ever been you and isn't anymore, then you can feel free to say amen. But let me tell you, if that's you, it ain't going to work. You'll never be able to do it. You will never be able to do it. He will require something of you that you do not have the fortitude to fulfill. But Jesus isn't done with him. He's going to take the ones that didn't rejoice over the word that Christ gave to them and cause them to have a new heart so that they might rejoice. And so in John chapter 20 and verse 21, on the day of the resurrection, it says that on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. It's the same language that the Septuagint uses to describe the way that God breathed into Adam and made him a living being. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And so here you have Peter, he's confident in himself, he's confident in the version that he has of who Christ is, he's confident in the version of he has who he is. Jesus lets Satan run him through the sifter. And what the sifter shows is that Peter, while not as arrogant as Jeroboam I, was definitely on the same page. Oh, he thought he knew who his God was. Until he saw him hang there and die. But now grace has come. And Peter's a new man. Christ didn't die to make trophies to set on shelves, you see. Remember, he has a purpose for Peter. When you have turned again, feed my sheep. And so, in the book of John, in chapter 21, Peter goes fishing because... When guys don't know what else to do, they have a tendency to turn to the thing that they can do without having to think much about. And so Peter goes fishing. And you know the narrative. Jesus shows up on the shore, and there's a lot of events that go on with catching fish and toss that on the other side and, and, and fish already on the fire and all those sorts of things. But, but Peter's our focus this morning, and he Peter rips off his outer clothing, just strips down to his underwear, basically jumps into the water and swims to shore to meet the Lord. And there's this, a lot of tension going on there because he knows there's unfinished business between him and Christ. The Lord has saved him, but, but there's something going on here that has to be reconciled. 
And so in John chapter 21 and verse 15, in one of the most beautiful pieces of, it's just one of the most, it's one of the most beautiful dialogues in, in all the New Testament, both for what it contains and, and the grammar with which it is written. There's just too much interplay to go into here this morning, but let's just say it's deep, man. When they had finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, there is like this wild interplay going on where they're using different forms of the word love back and forth that mean different things. But the most incredible part is what happens with the word no because Peter's responded every time to Christ speaking about intellectual knowledge. Lord, you know that I love you. There's a set of facts here. We could list all the stuff. You know that I love you. And this time with Peter broken down to the core because he's just being embarrassed in front of all of his peers. <laughs> with Peter broken down to the core, knowing what he did and his guilt on full display, he switches that up and he says, Lord, you gnosko, you, you, you intimately know because, because we are intimate. You know. You're intimate with me. That's how you know. And Jesus said to him, in his satisfaction, feed my sheep. Now Christ is satisfied. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you did not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And because of being shaken through the sieve, it is the means by which Peter comes to a place where even the threat upon his own life will never again be sufficient to cause him to deny Christ. One of the most gracious things that Jesus Christ ever did for Simon Peter was to not tell Satan no. It was the means that brought him to the place when his own life would once again be on the line and they'd say, if you will just recant, he would look at them and refuse. This is what it looks like when God shakes those who do not want to be shaken. It's not an easy thing, it's not a bounce around, it's not a trampoline. Even though if you ever had an old dirty trampoline that's the kind that all of us kids that if you lived in the country and not in the city had at your place, if you ever made the mistake of deciding to crawl under there when someone else was bouncing on it to see what it looks like, you figured out real quick that it actually was a sieve because it all just... But that's not what this is. This isn't easy. It's only used twice in all of Scripture and once it's with Peter and that was rough enough. The other time it's with Israel. This is what it looks like 
when God shakes those who do not want to be shaken. Those who would say, disaster will not overtake or meet us. You understand when they say that in, 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 in chapter 9 verse 10, it means that disaster is not going to be able to catch us from behind. It won't overtake us. And it's not going to meet us in front of us where we're going. Basically, we're secure. Disaster may come to other people. It may come to other places. It may come to other times. But not here. And not now. And not us. The Lord spoke of their attitude in Amos chapter 6, verses 1-3, through 3, where He said, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes, pass over to Calneh and see. And from there, go up to Hamath the Great and go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. This is the pride of their heart. It started with Jeroboam I, a king of such arrogance that when he had blasphemed the Lord and spit in his face, metaphorically, as much as he possibly could and was in the middle of that blasphemous ritual when the actual man of God shows up with the actual word of God, the first thing he's going to have him done is put away with. His arm was never the same. It says that because of what he did, it corrupted the heart of the people also. And here you see that same heart. The word of the Lord comes and it's disaster and they go, man, don't preach that here. Don't be a Debbie Downer. Not here. It's not going to overtake us from behind. We're not going to meet it up front. If it does, we know how to mitigate. If it does, we know how to deal. Now, Amos is a pretty short book that packs a lot of punch. Jeremiah was a contemporary with Amos and a very much a counterpart to his message, except for instead of being focused on the northern kingdom of Israel, Jeremiah was focused predominantly on the southern kingdom of Judah. When all of the things that they were speaking about these people began to unfold, you know, the day a disaster comes, a lot of times what the wealthy will do is they have the means to get out. How many people have said here before, I'm not meaning here like us, but have you? how many people have you heard say stuff like, man, if it gets bad enough, I'll just go to Costa Rica. People of means have a tendency to get out. And so what had happened in Jeremiah's day is the, the first waves of oppression were coming on Judah, which those first real waves were going to come at the same hand of the guy that is going to completely destroy northern Israel. When the first real waves of oppression and destruction were coming into Judah, man, a lot of the rich people just got out. You know? Like Hemingway in Paris. Just leave. And where do they go? They went somewhere where it was sunny and nice and prosperous. They went to Egypt and to Cush. 
while Amos speaks pretty briefly, the Lord gives Jeremiah a little bit more developed view of who these are. So let's take a look, if we can, in Jeremiah chapter 44 at the brothers of Israel to the south who have the same heart as their brothers in the north have. They were just taking a little bit longer to perfect it. And so when disaster did come, what did they say? Disaster's not going to overtake us. We'll flee it. We'll leave. We'll go somewhere where there's not disaster. Where do you want to go? Egypt looks nice this time of year. After all, you heard about the cucumbers and the meat pots, right? Let's go. And so you've got all these Jewish expats living in Egypt thinking everything's hunky-dory and good. And that they have fled from the day of disaster that was prophesied upon them by these pesky prophets and preachers that just wouldn't give up on it. Hmm. Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 1 through 14. Basically, God giving a detailed view of no matter where you go, I'll be there to destroy you. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt. And you got Egypt and Cush are, are, are two people groups and, and nations developed out of them that are just the, the top, you know, eastern corner of Africa. They're very close neighbors to Israel. You know, just far enough to get away, just enough to get the heat off of you. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt at Migdal, at Tephanes in Memphis in the land of Pathros. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them because of the evil they committed, provoking me to anger, in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. And yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. Man, in this section of Scripture, you're seeing the people's heart. Disaster will never overtake us. And God telling them, you know, besides, all this prophet stuff and all this word of the Lord stuff, it's always so negative and so heavy. Why don't you say something nice and encouraging once in a while? You see the heart of the Lord. He's like, man, I'm sending them to you, pleading with you. Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from the evil and make no offerings to other God. And therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. And they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. And now thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, infant and child from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? He said, ultimately, the sin that you're doing is going to destroy you. Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among the nations of the earth? 
Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared nor walked in my law or my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all of Judah. Same thing he said to Israel. I have fixed my eye upon you for evil and not for good. I will set my face against you for harm and cut off all of Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live And they shall all be consumed in the land of Egypt. They shall fall by the sword and by famine. They shall be consumed from their least to their greatest. They shall die by the sword and by famine. And they shall become an oath, a horror, a curse, and a taunt. And I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives. Okay, now the Lord is developing exactly what he told Amos. It was what he told David. It was great when he told David, no matter where you go, I will always be there to uphold you. Because David was a man after his own heart. Now you have these people who are blasphemously, arrogantly, consistently, and defiantly against God. And he says, buddy, no matter where you go, I will be there. No matter where you go, I will be there to destroy you. And they said, no, you won't. Disaster won't overtake us. It won't confront us. We'll just go to Egypt. He says, do you think I'm any different God in Egypt than I am in Judah? Do you think it's any different in Memphis than it is in Jerusalem? What's amazing is what comes next. What's amazing is their response. You know, I, I, don't, you, I don't think you would expect at this point with what we've seen out of these folks, I don't think you would expect them to all of a sudden, unless it was just like the Lord in Nineveh, you know, where Jonah walks in there, kind of perturbed, he's even there and says, repent, and they all go, oh, yes, you know, like this crazy movement of the Spirit. Like, I don't think you expect to see that because the Lord said that's not going to happen, but you would think that people would at least try to mitigate their position a little bit. You think they'd at least try to blunt the spear, round it off. Well, you know, you're right. Maybe things got a little out of hand. We could pull this down a little bit. We could push that forward a little bit. You know, we need to clean up our act a little. Man, that is not what you get at all. You want to know why the Lord's so angry at these people? Look at their heart. In verse 15, Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods and all the women who stood by a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros, in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah. As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then... We had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. What an arrogant statement. 
When the Lord has already told them the reason that you saw no disaster was because I was sending prophets begging you to listen to what my heart was. Why are you doing this to yourself? It is going to destroy you. And now that that has come, not only are you arrogant, but you prefer denial and ignorance to truth. And they say, we won't do any of it. None of it. Both these husbands that were in complete, complete rebellion against God by allowing their wife to run off and do whatever she wanted with whatever foreign God she wanted. By the women who stood by and watched, consenting as their men did the same thing. They just throw it back in his face. When God shakes those that who do not want to be shaken, it is a violent shaking indeed. None will fall to the earth. There's going to be two options for these people. The mass majority will die. Die by the sword and die of famine. A few will receive mercy to go back as a fugitive. And those are the two options. And yet, boy, the concept of captive is a loaded term, but. And yet, the very fact that some will go back as fugitives is proof positive that God does not intend to make an absolute end of Jacob. This is exactly the same thing. He tells the people of the north in Amos chapter 9, verse 8, where it says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon you, the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Now, while Jeremiah is speaking the word of the Lord to the people of Judah who thought that they could flee the day of disaster and it would not befall them because they can outrun, outsmart, and outhide God. Well, he was speaking to them in Egypt. It would be directly next door in Cush that so many of the northern tribe of Israel would run to. He speaks of them this way in verse 7. Are you not like the Cushites to me? You run over there, think you're going to remain a people apart but enjoy all of their uh, economy and services. Think you'll get treated different because you're a Jew there. He said, are you not... Like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, 
Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the service of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. You don't get to slip away to Egypt. You don't get to slip away to Cush. You can say all day long that disaster won't overtake us. You can say all day long it won't confront us. But no matter where you go, I will be there. All depending on your position to him, that is either a comfort or a horror to these people at this point in time. It is a horror. And yet some will go back. He will not make a complete end. And though painful as it was, we've seen the way that the shaking of Peter expedited the sanctification of God in him. Brought him to the place where he could be the man to do the things that God required. And so too it will be with Israel For Paul writes in chapter 11 of Romans, As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Amen? Irrevocable. For just as you that being you Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience. Because of these people's disobedience, the offer of the gospel has come to me and to you. Now look, I don't know what to do with that. I think what you do with it is do what, because you don't want to be too down in the mouth about it. We're not going to get holier than thou and say, well, Lord, you shouldn't have saved me that way. There should have been a better way. Lower carbon footprint and, you know, convenient transportation. Give me both. You should have done it better than that. We're not going to get holier than thou and say that. We're also not going to jump around and go, yay, that all these people are dead so that I could have the opportunity for salvation. That's not what Paul did. He wept. What did Paul do? Paul said, oh, the mysteries and the wonder and the majesty of God. How inscrutable are his judgments. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, to me and you, they may also now receive mercy. There is a big part that you have to play in this Gentile, but we're not going there today. Don't write the Jew off. It's a big part you have to play. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so, the question I want to ask is we kind of wrap up the first half of chapter 9 here because chapter 9 might as well be two separate chapters 
So as, as we kind of wrap up the first half of chapter 9, the question I want to ask is once again this. Do you have the faith to trust God to do it in this way? Is this okay with you? I'm not saying are you happy that all of these people died in the full depravity of their sin, shaking their fist at God. I'm not asking if you're happy about that. I'm not happy about that. I wish they repented. But are you settled with it? Is it okay? Do you have that Hebrews chapter 1 or Hebrews chapter 11 kind of faith that is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen? For by it the people of old received their commendation. Do you have that gift of faith that in, all, in the midst of all of this, as hard and as difficult and, and as tough as much of it is, can you say, Lord, yes, that is good? It's not easy. But it's good. And it is your sovereign prerogative to do with your creation whatever you please. Well, I pray that you do have it. For a couple of different reasons. One is because, if and we're not going to do it this morning because I'd preach on it for an hour and a half, but I'm telling you, this word teaches that that kind of faith is the, it not only is it the same kind of faith, but it is the only kind of faith that accompanies salvation. That's it. And, and so if you say, well, I have faith, but I don't have faith for that, friends, real dangerous situation. That is the faith that accompanies salvation. Because if you're consistent with yourself, just let you know a little secret here, without doing the whole bit, if you're, if you're consistent with your thinking and you're honest with yourself, then you'll realize that if you've got a problem with God doing that to the most vile, depraved sinners that would shake their fist in his face, then you've also got a problem with him doing it to his 100% innocent and perfectly holy son. So not only is it the same type of faith that accompanies salvation, it is the only type of faith that accompanies salvation. This is the gift of God that comes through the conduit of the Word of God by the Spirit of God. It is the thing that there was going to be a famine of in Israel. So I hope, I hope you have the kind of faith to be able to see it that way, first of all, from a salvific standpoint. But then secondly, um, I hope you have that kind of faith um, for a standpoint that applies both to the glory of God and the fact that if you are his people, the most awesome thing in the world to ever experience is the unbridled glory of God. So I hope that you have that kind of faith from a salvation standpoint. I hope you have it from a glory of God standpoint. And so that when you see the glory of God unfolding in the way it's going to fold, you can sit there and go, yeah, do it like that. Because if you want to know what it looks like when all of this shaking comes to an end and he looks over there at those in Cush and says, what difference are you to me than a Cushite? The answer is going to be, the difference isn't you, it's me. And I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you understand that because of what happened during the diaspora, that there are almost certainly Jews living in Cush today that have no idea they're Jews. They're going to know one day. I hope 
Man, I hope you have that kind of faith because I want you to see this. Zephaniah chapter 3. Now I know it's, it's like just go a little bit to the right. You'll find it. Zephaniah chapter 3. This is what it will look like for Israel in Cush on the day that the sieve has obtained its purpose. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter and I'm done. Okay. The first thing you see is the Lord dealing with His enemies. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. We've seen plenty of that in these people today. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves, leaving nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust know no shame. It's a very kind of lyric way of talking about all the stuff that he was talking about in Jeremiah. You're evil, you're bad, I'm in your midst being righteous, showing you everything I can, and you have no shame about what you're doing and will not repent and turn. And then he comes and he does it, and they still won't listen. I've cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste to streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. And then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. Wait for me. Because you did this, wait. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Say, okay. You said this was going to be awesome. It is awesome. That's going to be an awesome thing to see. Awesome doesn't necessarily mean giddy. But sometimes it does. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord from beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones. Okay, not, these aren't... Now, he looked, the man, every tribe, nation, and language, but that's not what he's talking about right here. He is talking about the daughter of my dispersed ones. They shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. 
They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall gaze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud. O daughters of Zion, shout. O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, for the Lord has taken away the judgments against you and has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil. that That is Christ. And it's not euphemism. It is the day that he comes striding forth from Basra and Splits the Mount of Olives, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty outside the city, and brings back the daughters of his dispersed ones from around this planet, even those he spoke to in Amos and Cush. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. And let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame, gather the outcast, and I will... Change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. When it comes to shaking those that do not want to be shaken whether we're talking about a nation like Israel or an individual like Peter or me or you, it is always a violent thing. There will always be things about it that if we could have it a different way, we would have it a different way. Friends, the faith that accompanies salvation says you don't want it a different way. You just think you do. You just think you do. This is the way you want it. Wait for me, he says. And he will fulfill with glorious perfection, incredible violence, and magnificent mercy everything that he has promised. To the praise of his glory and to the joy of his redeemed. I pray that we look forward to great anticipation to that day. I pray that if you are on the wrong side of that day, that you would cease being his enemy and become his child.